The following message is brought to you by Capital City Baptist Church of Port Mosby. We exist to bring glory to God by knowing Christ and making Him known. If you would like to visit our church, we hold multiple services on Sunday mornings starting at 9 a.m. We are located between Motokea Wharf and Edai Town. Pickups are available 709-1000. Through 8, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. If you noticed our song service this morning was a little bit shorter than normal, we will sing another song at the end of the service. I think helps to tie together the rest between the sermon and the song service. So Romans chapter 3. Verses 1 to 8. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way. Chiefly, because that upon uh, unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous to take vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. We're into Psalm 67, and then also, if you'll come to 2 Samuel 7, uh, we'll launch from 2 Samuel 7 and then work our way into the others. On Tuesday morning this past week, we, Becky and I began our day as we normally do, uh, I got up and made a cup of coffee for the both of us. I came back and uh, the two of us sat on the bed. This is our normal morning routine. The two of us sat on the bed, did our devotion side by side. We read about the same speed. And so as we're reading, sometimes we are want to make comment. Usually, whatever few verses I'm at, she's about the same few verses, give or take. And uh, this past Tuesday morning, we were reading and... The same verse jumped off the page at both of us at the same time, and we both made comment at the same time. That's quite rare. I'll read to you what the verse was, and maybe it'll jump off the page at you. You don't have to turn there. This is First Chronicles. I'll read it to you. First Chronicles 14, verses 2 and 3. You might love King David. Here he is. David perceived that the Lord had confirmed him king over Israel, for his kingdom was lifted up on high because of his people Israel. And David took more wives at Jerusalem, and David begat more sons and daughters. And that verse jumped off the page at me, and it jumped off the page at Becky at the very same time. I don't know if it jumped off the page at you. Let me read it to you. Maybe you missed it. Here's what he said. David perceived that the Lord had confirmed him king over Israel. Woohoo! For his kingdom was lifted up high because of his people Israel. And David took more kings, uh, sorry, David took more wives at Jerusalem. If we had a soundtrack that went along behind that, there would have been a woo at the first part, and there would have been... He took more wives? What's your deal, dude? There's a problem here. David has a character flaw. It's a tragedy that follows along in David's character all throughout his life. 
Uh, you see it as he comes to marry Saul's daughter, his first wife. Saul's daughter. Saul says, hey, if anybody's going to take and lead my people into battle, I'll give them my firstborn daughter. And here's a girl named Michal, and David earns her, as it were, and takes her as wife, and that is a rocky marriage from day one. David doesn't get along with his father-in-law. She listens to her dad. There's a lot of problems, and David and Michal never really get along. At one point, it says that Michal loved David so much, and then later on, she despised him. It's a rocky marriage. So then David's out working in the fields one day, and he comes across a lady by the name of Abigail. And if you read uh, through the scriptures, you'll come across this story about this lady named Abigail. Uh, There's a problem. She's already married. And David takes care of the sheep for Abigail's family. David looks after them, runs the bad guys off, and there's this little love story that grows between David and Abigail. But again, I've got a problem. She's a married woman. Oh, and by the way, he's a married man. And then, through the hardness of his heart, her husband dies, and because she's now a widow, he can take her to be his wife. Except, he's a married man. And so he takes her as wife, and and some would read that chapter and see, oh, here's this beautiful love story where they couldn't get married before because her wicked husband, but now her wicked husband dies, and so she's a widow and he can take her. Let me read for you, I'll put it on the board, let me read for you the, the passage there in 1 Samuel 25, says this, 1 Samuel 25 verse 42, and Abigail hasted, that's the now widow, who has fallen in love with David, and David has fallen in love with her, but they can't get married because, you know, she had a husband. And Abigail hasted and arose and rode upon an ass with five damsels of her that went after her, and she went after the messengers of David and became his wife. And if there was a soundtrack, you might have heard, woo, until you read the next verse. Then verse 43, David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they were also both of them his wives. He had one. Then he had two plus three. What's your deal, dude? And a few years pass, and he comes into the passage where I just read for you a few minutes ago, and it said that he took on four wives at one time. Their names were Maacah, Haggith, Abital, and Eglah. What bummers of names. <laughs> and, and who takes on four wives at the same time anyway? This guy's got a character flaw that goes right down through him. He's got a character flaw. He can't be satisfied with the one that God gave him, so he goes to another one, and then he goes to another one, and then he goes to four more. Hey, look, if my daughters, somehow all of a sudden one of my daughters started into a relationship with David, I would pack her up and we would move to a different country because this dude's a problem. And by the way, guys, and let me just pause right here. Uh, young ladies, it doesn't matter how handsome he is, how much money he's got, or what position. That's not in my notes. I'll just step off to the side for a second. It doesn't matter how much he's got going for him. If he's already got one, don't be number two, because when you're number two, there will be number three. I promise. And so here's David. And yet, you and I so often look at the Scriptures, and you and I look back at David, and we go, I want to insert myself into David's stories. We do that all the time. We put ourselves into a David story. David and Goliath, I want to be David. I want to be out there slinging stones at giants. Is that not the way we do, right? We go, I've got a giant in my life, and I've got to step up and have faith, and I'm going to take five stones, and I'm going to knock that giant down. 
Or maybe we insert, our, insert ourselves into David's story when he's running from King Saul, and maybe somebody's causing problems in your life. And you go, you know what, I'm going to go run and hide in this cave, and God's going to protect me from that person that's causing problems in my life. We just insert ourselves into the stories, but we don't know what to do with David had seven wives. You see, the problem is God never intended for us to be the point of the story. David wasn't the point of the story anyway. God was. And the point of every one of the stories in the Old Testament and the New Testament combined, the point of every one of those stories is the faithfulness of God. So that David, when he steps out onto the battlefield, God is going to be faithful. He's going to be faithful to his name because here's a guy that's blaspheming his name. And God just happens to use David and just happens to use a sling and a stone. God could have used whatever he wanted to, but that day God chose to use David. It's not about me hiding behind my stone and I'm going to knock down my giants. No, it's about God being faithful to himself. And God taking David and hiding him away, and God can hide away anybody that he wants to because he has his purposes later on in their life. And oh, by the way, he turns the hearts of kings in his hand whithersoever he wills so that Saul can come in, fall asleep, and be right at the feet of David and not even realize it. You see, God's faithfulness is the point all throughout all of those Old Testament stories. And you and I, we just have a hard time figuring out how do we handle God's blessings on David's life and David having seven wives. Much less, let's talk about number eight, her name was Bathsheba. What a wreck of a life, and you and I, we don't know how to handle that. And the point of it is not me inserting myself into the story. The point is God is always faithful. He honors his name and he opens the eyes of the spiritually blind and he turns the hearts of kings in his hands. And you're here in 2 Samuel. I want, to see, I want you to see some more of the faithfulness of God in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Look at verse number 9. Now God's going to give to David a covenant. If you want to give it a name, it's the Davidic covenant. In other words, David's covenant. This is the covenant that God gave to David. There's seven steps of it. I'm not going to outline them, but I'll just point at them so you can see them. If you want to underline them, you're welcome to. And this just gives you an idea of what God promised to David. And by the way, when God promised this to David, God already knew what David had already in his past and what was coming in his future. So look here at chapter 7 and verse number 9. God says to David, I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and I cut off all your enemies out of your sight, and I have made thee a great name. That's one of the things of God's promise. I'm going to make of you a great name. In other words, people for the rest of generations will look back on King David. And don't we? He said, I'm going to make your name great. And then in verse 10, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them. They may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. In other words, God makes a promise that He will put Israel in their place, in their land. No one will come and invade and push them out anymore. And by the way, history has shown that that promise has not yet been fulfilled. There is coming a day when that promise will be fulfilled. And I think that the last week has shown us in global news that with 4,000 rockets getting shot into them in the last week, that it's very obvious that this promise has not yet been fulfilled. And yet, it's a promise from God who will always be faithful. And so he gives this promise to David, the day's coming, and your people will settle in your land, and nobody's going to run them out. You come down to verse number 12, you'll see another one. When thy days be fulfilled, in other words, when you're done and, and you're about to die, and you've slept with your fathers... I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. In other words, 
I'm promising you, this is God, I'm promising you, David, when you die, your son's going to be the one that takes the throne. That did not happen for Saul. Remember Saul died? God goes, I'm tired of Saul and his lineage. We get a whole brand new one. And here, David, David gets a promise from God, you sit on the throne, and your descendants are the ones that will sit on the throne. And by the way, it will be your descendants forever. Nobody else will sit on the throne except for your descendants. And that one gets fulfilled, again, in the future, by Jesus. Verse 13, He shall build a house for, his, house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. His kingdom will go on and on and on. There will not be an end to that kingdom. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Oh, what a wonderful promise from God the Father to David a dad. Because David, one day you're going to be dead and gone, but I'll take your place as a father for Solomon. That's a beautiful promise he makes. Verse 15, another one. My mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul. I won't remove my mercy from Solomon. I will keep taking care of him. Verse 16, thy house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. And so here we see promises that God makes to David. And David has still got seven wives. And by the way, this happened in 2 Samuel chapter Seven. That's important to remember. Here we are, 2 Samuel chapter 7. God makes this promise to David, and four chapters later, there's a story about a, guy, a lady by the name of Bathsheba. And if you don't remember that story, I'll just hit the highlights. The nation was at war. Joab was leading the army, and they were away at war, and David's sitting back at his house. It's the cool of the evening. He steps out onto the roof of his house, and he looks across, and there's a lady at another house, and she's there bathing, and he sees her. He lusts after her. He sends word for her, brings her to his house, and honestly, if you were to go by today's standards, whether she wanted to or not, it's rape. Brings her to his house, has an affair with her. She goes back to his, her house and sends word. She's with child. In this moment, he's really in hot water. Her husband is at war at the front. He sends word for the husband. Bring the husband back. The husband comes back. David gets the husband drunk. Says, here, go to the house and spend the night with your wife. And you and I know he's trying to cover things up. And this guy has so much character, he's got so much backbone that he refuses to go to his own house, sleeps on the front step of David's house all night long, and in doing so, he sealed his own death sentence. David says, fine, you're not going to go sleep with her? I'll cover it up a different way. She'll be a widow. I've done the widow thing before, here we go again. And he sends a handwritten letter to Joab at the forefront, gives it to the husband to carry the letter to the forefront. And here's what the letter says. Put this, put this man at the front of the battle and retreat and leave him in the front so that he'll die. That's murder. Rapist, polygamist, murderer. Word comes back to David. He's dead. If you read the passage, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you read the passage, you'll come across things like David at first was upset because they lost in the battle, but when he got word that Uriah the Hittite had died, he rejoiced. What a wicked heart. And here, word comes to him that the husband's dead, so he sends word down to the girl. Husband's out of the way, come on up to the house. And he thinks he's covered up everything, 
and there here comes a baby, and Nathan the prophet walks in, and you might remember the story. Nathan puts a finger in David's face. You are the man. You've sinned against a holy God. You see, God sees everything. He knows everything. You will not hide anything from God. And that's what we've been hearing for the last couple of chapters, by the way. God hears everything, sees everything, knows everything. You will not hide anything from God. And yet, we saw last week in Romans chapter 2, we saw that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. And David did one thing and one thing alone that is the only thing that could ever help him. He repented. He did not shift the blame. He didn't say it's somebody else's fault. He didn't say, God, it was because I was out there and, and I just needed, a, I needed to take a, a moment to relax my mind. And, and God, you just made that girl so pretty. And, and he didn't say, well, it's anybody else's fault. Instead, he said, I'm the one that did wrong. And he begged for God's mercy. And by the way, all of Psalm chapter 51, just outflowing of his repentance. I'll read for you Psalm 51 and verse number 4. By the way, verse 3, he made the statement, against thee, against you, God, against you, I've sinned. I've sinned against you, and my sin is ever before me. Then he says in verse 4, against thee and thee only have I sinned, and I've done this evil in thy sight. He didn't shift the blame like Adam did. He didn't make excuses for himself. He didn't say, I didn't have any other choice. He never said anything like, and please listen up, young people, he never said anything like, oh, he took the blame himself. That's true repentance. I sinned. I was wrong. I'm sorry. That's true repentance. True repentance does not look like, but they did, no, I did wrong. And he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. And he could have said so many other things. He recognized the depravity of his own heart as he said, against you, God. He didn't say against Uriah. He didn't say against Bathsheba. He didn't say against Joab or Michal or Ahinoam or Abigail or all the other four wives or against my children or against the leaders of the nation or against the rest of the nation who will, by the way, carry the punishment for this sin for the rest of his reign. He said, against you, God. Guys, you've got to understand that when you sin, your sin is against a holy God. He says, God, against you, I've sinned. Now, I want you to catch the rest of this verse because the rest of this verse is so important for our passage in Romans chapter 3. Here's what he says, the rest of this verse. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. God, whatever you decide, here's what he's saying, whatever you decide is right. Because I'm sinful, and I've done wrong, and I'm a rapist, I'm a murderer, I'm a polygamist, I've turned against you, God, and whatever you decide, your judgment is always holy, and your judgment is always right, so I'm just bowing before you, I'm sinful, and I'm sorry, and I'm repentant, and whatever you decide is perfect. And that brings me to our overarching thought for today. It's this, God is faithful in spite of our sinfulness. God is faithful in spite of our sinfulness. God had every right to revoke the Second Samuel chapter 7 Davidic covenant. He had every right because he's God. He can do what he wants to. And yet God had promised David that his descendants would be the ones that would sit on the throne. God had promised peace and prosperity for the people. God had made these promises and make his name great. 
God knew when He made that promise, He knew that there were seven wives in the background and there would still be a rape and murder in the, in the future. And God knew these things. And God is faithful. Brothers and sisters, don't despise His goodness. Bow before Him. Repentant, broken heart, it will change everything. God is faithful. And so that brings us to Romans 3. So if you want to come over to Romans 3 with me, we'll look at today's passage. We'll walk through verses 1 through 8. In our walk through the book of Romans, we've taken the last 44 verses to establish the depths of man's sinfulness. We talked about the spiral and how you'll continue to go down in a spiral as you turn your back on God. David did the very same thing. God will give you up even to the point of a reprobate mind. God will let you go into your sinfulness. And down you go in that spiral. 44 verses we've seen. And He is always just. His judgment is perfect. He will always judge sin. So then we come into chapter 3. At the end of chapter 2, He made a statement that you cannot just wear a religious label and think that that makes you right with God. The label He used was Jewishness. So you think that you're a Jew and God's going to just be happy with you and let you right on in because you've got that label and we brought that to modern day language. You think you are whatever denomination and that's going to get you in. That doesn't work. doesn't matter if you're Baptist. God doesn't give free rides for labels. Then he comes into chapter 3 and verse number 1 and he asks a question at the beginning that will tie together with the rest of what we've seen with David. Verse number 1, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much, every way. Chiefly, or you might say, number one, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. So here's a question. If you're a Jew, does that give you any benefit over being a Gentile? Now, by the way, further in this chapter, which we'll see next week, further in this chapter, he actually gives the opposite question. And so we'll worry about that later. But right now his question is, do you, as a Jew, do you have any advantage over being a Gentile? And the answer is yes. And the number one reason is given in verse number two. His number two reason comes much further in the book. But number one answer is in verse number two, he says, much every way, chiefly, here it is, number one, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. The Word of God was given to Jewish people. That's, that, so if you're a Jewish person, you can say, yes, God has shown favor to us as Jewish people because He gave us His Word. The oracles of God, literally the words of God, the oracles of God were given to the Jewish people. Now we can see that from in this moment when he's writing, we can see there were 39 books in the Old Testament. And every one of the authors in the Old Testament is Jewish. And they, those books were given to a Jewish audience. So he goes, the oracles of God, the words of God were given through Jewish writers to Jewish people. So that's a benefit, right? But there was a purpose for it. He didn't just give it and say, okay, here's my word, toss it out to the world and let you guys do with it what you want to. There's a purpose for him giving his word. You've got that piece of paper, I think, in Psalm 67. Bring that piece of paper over to Romans 3, because we'll come back to Romans 3 in just a minute. But look at Psalm 67, and you'll get to see what was the purpose for God being merciful and gracious to the nation of Israel. You can see it in Psalm chapter 67. Why did God show His favor on Israel? 
Here it is, Psalm 67. God be merciful unto us, and bless us, and cause His face to shine upon us. Selah. In other words, pause in the song, stop, think about what it was we just said. So the question brings us to a pause. It goes, why was God merciful to us? Now verse 2. That. The word that, you might say, because, for this reason, that. Verse 2. That thy way may be known upon earth. There you go. Why did God give His word to Jewish people? Why did He entrust them with His oracles so that, verse 2, that thy way may be known to the earth? So here, the whole earth is supposed to know about God's goodness because of the way that God has dealt with the Jewish people. We'll keep going. Thy saving health among all nations. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Oh, by the way, you can even bring that home today into your life. God has been good to you, not so that you could absorb His goodness upon your own lust, but instead so that you can be an example to the nations. So that people will look at you and say, yes, God has been good to that person, merciful to that person, because of Himself and His faithfulness, and that is an example for others to see. Don't bring it to yourself and hide it in yourself. We are to be giving out. Now, verse 3, Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Then shall the earth yield her increase, and God, even our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear Him. So there's a reason that God gave His oracles, His word, to the Jewish people, and the reason was so that the whole earth would see the goodness of God in that, and the whole earth would fear God, follow God. But what did Israel do when they received the oracles of God? Oh, let me walk you through this one. You might remember Mount Sinai. We've talked about that over the last few weeks. Remember Mount Sinai? God's up on the mountain. Thunder and lightning. And what are the people doing at the foot of the mountain? We're not even a month and a half later. Moses left us. We're 40 days later. The people of Israel are at the foot of the mountain while God's up there saying, Thou shalt not have any other God before me. They're down here worshiping a baby cow. Come on, guys. You're just messing the whole thing up. There's... As they're wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, they're walking around in the wilderness. Do you remember what it was that they followed? During the day, pillar of cloud. If you know the answer, I want you to tell me. During the night, a pillar of fire. Good, you know it. In the desert, there's something that's really important. During the day, the sun is going to cook your kill ahead. <laughs> right? And at night, it's going to get so cold, you're going to freeze your toes off. So you know what you need at night? Fire. And you know what you need during the day? A cloud. So God was everything they needed day and night, day and night, day and night, day and night for 40 years. Here's a pillar of cloud. I'm going to cover you up and I'm going to give you a shade as we go through the journey. And at night, you're going to be really cold, but I'll be the pillar of fire. I will provide the warmth for your entire 2 million people camp. God's going to look after His people. And you know what they did? They complained. We have to eat manna. You know what manna was? Angel's food. 
God's given them free angels' food day after day. They don't have to turn the soil. They don't have to do anything for it. They don't even have to go to the store. Just walk out of your tent, collect some for today. Angels' food. And they're going to complain about that? Oh, the goodness of God is meant to lead you to repentance, friend. Then when they come to the River Jordan, it's time for them to cross over into the Jordan land, into the Canaan land, the promised land. That's what they've been looking forward to for 40 years. Two and a half tribes pull up to the river and they're like, er, we're done. Two and a half tribes decided to get out of the plan of God for the promised land and they decided to park it on the doorstep. Like, God has promised you this entire land flowing with milk and honey, and you're just going to take the other side? As the generations would pass, they enjoyed peace from wartime, and every time they came to a peacetime, coming out of a war, they would come to peacetime, they would always turn to idolatry. By the time you get to King Josiah's day, This is 2 Kings 22, and you can read this later. By the time you get to Josiah's day, the people have even forgotten that there is such a thing as the book of the law. Forgotten it. A couple hundred years have now passed from King David to King Josiah, and the people have forgotten that God gave them the law. And what happened was there was a guy cleaning the temple. That's an amazing thought in itself. But he's cleaning up the temple because it's been a mess. He goes in there, he starts cleaning up the temple. He comes across a book of the law. He sits down and reads it, and he can't believe what it says. He says, we're so far away from this. He passes the book of the law up to Josiah. Josiah, the king, reads what is probably the only copy at that point. He reads it. He's terrified and begins to tear his own clothes. He says, I can't believe that we've strayed so far from what God wants for us. And then you look through all, throughout the Old Testament as they tortured and killed their own prophets that God had sent to them. Yea, you even come into the New Testament and they, God sends His very own Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And they did what? Killed Him. You see, God gave His oracles to them. He gave His promises. He gave His word. And they continually walked away. By the way, don't think we're any better. God's given us His promises, He's given us His word, and yet continually we walk away in sin, over and over and over and over and over. And we see it with David, we see it with the Old Old Testament people of Israel, and yet, friend, God is faithful in spite of our sinfulness. Man is bent to unfaithfulness, and yet God is always faithful. We're back here in Romans chapter 3 again. Verse number 3. Paul has just asked this question, is there an advantage to being a Jew? That advantage comes with a condemnation. Verse number 3. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? In other words, if some were not faithful, does that mean that God's faithfulness is useless? And the answer is obviously no. Did David's sin with Bathsheba take away the faithfulness of God? The answer is no. Is your sinfulness going to take away the faithfulness of God? No. He is steadfast in His faithfulness. And then in verse number 4, he says, God forbid. Absolutely not. God does never forget His faithfulness. God forbid. Yea, let God be true and every man a liar. Take every single one of the 8 billion people on the earth right now and let them all say the exact same thing. And if it's the opposite of what God says, let every man be a liar and let God be true. For He's right and He's faithful in all of His sayings. Now the latter part of this verse is where we're going to see David again. Here we are. Chapter 3, verse number 4. As it is written... 
that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. That was Psalm 51 and verse 4. I'll read Psalm 51 and verse 4 again for you. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Here it is. That thou mightest be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. God, whatever you want to do is right. You are faithful in all of your ways. I'm sinful and I'm continually falling short of your glory. And God, however you decide to judge is right. There's only one thing I can do. I'll come broken before you and I'm going to cling to the cross. I'm going to come to Jesus. I'm going to trust Jesus, my only way that I can be right with God. I break my knees and come before Him, bow before Him and trust the blood of Christ. For God has unleashed His punishment and His judgment upon Jesus. I don't need it upon me. And He's been faithful. You will be justified, he says in verse 4. You will be justified in all your sayings. You might overcome when thou art judged. Who is the man that thinks that he can judge God? God will always be right. Whatever you say, O God, is right. However you judge is right. You are faithful. I don't deserve to be on an eternal throne. I don't deserve to have peace for my offspring. I don't deserve to be called your son. I don't deserve your goodness, but you are faithful. And you said that you would not turn away a broken and contrite heart. And you said that if any man would come unto you, you would not cast them out. And you've said that all of your ways are perfect. So I will come before you and beg for your mercy. And you said that you would give it because you are faithful. David did not deserve God's forgiveness and His faithfulness. Israel did not deserve His goodness and His forgiveness and His faithfulness, and you and I do not deserve His goodness and His faithfulness and His forgiveness. I look back at Israel, they're up, down, up, down. Win a war, fall into idolatry. Back up to the top, back down to the bottom. David, up to the top, down to the bottom. Up to the top. You and I, we do the very same thing, over and over and over, and yet God is continually faithful. One day I read the word and my heart sings and the next day I don't even want to go to church. And yet he's faithful. You see our heavenly father is faithful. He is faithful in spite of our sinfulness. Verses 5 to 8 are a stupid argument. He's going to say it that way. I just used Modern language. Let's read verses 5 to 8. This is Romans 3, verses 5 to 8. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? Parentheses, I speak as a man. So in other words, he says, I'm going to use a man-made, made-up argument, and that argument is dumb. In other words, if I sin, my sin, here's what he says, my sin is dark and it's black. And God's goodness is light and it's bright. So if I put my sin up against God, it will make Him look brighter. So therefore, if I get more sin, my more sin will be darker and I'll put it against the light and bright of Him and it'll make Him look better. It's a stupid argument. Uh, Maybe I'll illustrate this. How many of you remember the Tiger Torch? 
Tiger Torch. How many people remember? Tiger Torch. If you remember the Tiger Torch, let me see your hand. Tiger Torch. Oh, you all get a young bloodline. You bloodline. No, I love this line. How about Tin Torch? Tin Torch, the Tin Torch. Oh, my goodness. Tin, T-I-N, the Tin Torch. The Tiger Torch. Oh, now we know. Tin Torch, Tiger Torch. Let me try one more time. Okay, how many people remember the, t- the Tin Torch or the Tiger Torch? Now, okay, okay, I brought you in with Tin Torch. All right, Tiger. Tiger was the brand. Tin was the style. When I first came to, to, to be a missionary in Papua New Guinea, I first lived out in the bush. Uh, that was your only source of light. All right? Sorry, let me play. They had the replaceable bulbs. You remember that? You had to go buy Young Bloodline, sorry. You guys have no idea what we're talking about. You had to go and replace the bulb and the batteries. So two batteries, you put two batteries in. The, uh, the red cells, those were really bad. The blue cells were okay. The black cells was the best, but too much money. So you always went with a blue one. You put the blue ones in, two blue D-cell batteries. You put it in, and you turn it on. And I promise you, I can't find a Tiger Torch now for my life. But if we could get one, I would show it to you. If I put it on right now, right here, you would laugh about that thing. Because <laughs> it hardly gives any light at all. But if you're in the deepest jungle in a remote area, and it's dark night, no moon, clouds covering the stars, and it's thick, dark jungle. You take that tiger torch, and you put it on, you're going to get a little bit of light, (laughs) but at least you'll see where you can put your feet, right? And if you were like we were, then the Two D-cell batteries, they die, so then you put them next to the fire, warm them up, put them back inside. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Put them back in the, the torch. I saw guys come up with ways to put ten dead batteries on one torch. They tie them all together with a piece of bamboo and a wire comes back to the back. All kinds of ways to make that, light, that torch work. And, and, and you'd walk through the jungle, you'd walk through the jungle, ten, ten batteries, hold the wire in the right place, put the light on. Take two steps, put it off. You can take two more steps in the dark. Put it on, two steps. Take it off, two steps. Because you got to save that light. you got to save that light. LED changed our life, didn't it? LED is something else. Here's the point. In that darkness, in that darkness, the light seems like something. But you come here to this light, you put that light on. Did you put the light on or not yet? Right? And even we've got, some of us have got some pretty good torches on our mobile phones and even with that you go my mobile phone does it just doesn't do the job with these spotlights on my face right and then you take this and you say well well maybe if i can do enough badness this is the stupid argument for verse five if i can do enough badness it'll make the brightness of god look even better and he goes that's just ridiculous you're going to try to add on to darkness so that you can dispel the light of god oh my goodness are you an idiot how many dead batteries are you trying to add to that torch this just doesn't work you don't there's no way to compare this and he goes even if there was do you realize that you are trying to undermine god's ability to judge by you saying see all of my badness, I heaped on some extra so that you'll look good. Now you're going to judge me for heaping on badness? Because that's a ridiculous argument. It doesn't make any sense at all. He answers the question in verse number 6, 7, and 8. Verse 6, God forbid, of course not. For then how should God judge the world? God's right in all of its judgments. So you don't get to add on something. Here's some extra sin, God. I brought some extra sin so that you'll look better. 
goes, no, if you do that, then you just undermine God's ability to judge. God says, this is right, this is wrong. You're doing right. You get honor and glory and long life and life everlasting. We saw that in last week's passage. You do wrong, it's damnation. Eternity in hell. So you don't get to come and say, well, God, look at how bad I am because that makes you look so much better. It's just a stupid argument. Verse 7, For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? It's the same thing. This is a stupid argument. Verse 8, And not rather, and here's a parenthesis, As we be slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. I will address the parentheses when we get to chapter 6. Because he brings up that argument again in chapter 6. Essentially, he says, some people say that I'm telling you that you can live the way you want to and you can live sinfully. And he says, no, I don't teach that. Other people say that I teach that. He will address that at length in chapter 6, so we'll leave it for then. But his point here, he says, don't you know that those people who do evil, their damnation, the punishment that God will pour out upon them is right. It's just. And God's faithful in all of his ways, including in his justice and judgment. As I wrap this up, I'll wrap up in two thoughts here. God has revealed himself through his word. For the Jewish people, that was 39 books in the Old Testament. As Paul was writing the book of Romans, the New Testament wasn't written yet. A few of the books, Galatians was already written. Some of the other books were not written yet. There was not a New Testament for him to refer to as the scriptures. And yet you and I now have that. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. You and I have the completed word of God. Everything that God wants us to know, we have. And we have no right and no reason to ever walk away and say, I don't know what God wants for me. Oh no, He's given us His Word. So just as the Jewish people were blessed in the Old Testament by God having given them the Word, He's now given that blessing to all of us. We now are recipients of the Word of God. So be careful, don't try to twist His words into meaning something that they don't mean. Be honest with His Word. And there's a purpose that he's given the word, his word to us. I'll give you two verses that might help you. One is Psalm 19 and verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. There's a reason that God gave his word. It's convert your soul. It's another one. This is 2 Timothy. Well, I'll give you one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. In the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Paul, writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, he says this, That from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So what is the purpose of the scriptures? God's given his word to us. What is the purpose? It's able to make you wise to salvation through faith in Jesus. It will convert your soul. God's given us His Word, so don't handle it deceitfully. Don't walk away from it. He's faithful in all of His ways. Let me close by bringing us back to King David's story. Wife number eight, what a mess. He brings Bathsheba in as a wife. The baby dies. David repents. Guys, the only hope you have is to come before a holy God in repentance. Name the sin, own the sin, repent of the sin. It's the only hope. David does that. 
And then God does something that's beautiful. God redeemed that mess. Why don't you hear me say that again? God redeemed that mess. You read the rest of the life of David, and David never takes another wife. In fact, in his old days when he can't even get things together mentally, it says that his feet are always cold. He's an old man. Some of his advisors brought a young lady to be a concubine for him, and he refused to spend time with her. That's a man whose heart has changed. Here's David. Bathsheba becomes the favored wife for the rest of his days. In fact, she becomes a good advisor to him for the rest of his life. The one that he took. You see, God can redeem our messes. And they have a son. David and Bathsheba have a son. And his name's Solomon. And Solomon goes on to become the next king of Israel. You see, God can redeem our messes. And so whatever it is that's in the past, remember that he's always faithful. The turning point for you, he doesn't change. The turning point for you is going to be broken repentance, coming to him saying, God, however you decide is right. And so I'm going to be broken. I'm going to come before you. And your ways are always perfect. And you will be faithful. Father, thank you for your goodness upon us. Oh, how we do not deserve the goodness of God, and yet this goodness of God was meant to bring us to repentance. Father, I pray that we would not look lightly upon the word of God that's been given to us, but instead we would treasure it, be thankful for it. And Lord, in even those moments as we run, you've promised that you would hold on to us. Your steadfastness, your faithfulness from generation to generation. Lord, I pray that you would hold us, and Lord, I pray that we would hold on to you. Which in your beautiful name I ask it. Amen. I've asked Brother Eric to come and lead us in a closing song. I don't know if you know. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Matt Allen of Capital City Baptist Church of Port Mosby. We would love to have you join us for service if you are in the area. If you need help with transportation, please give us a call on 709 1000. Again, it's 709 1000.